Are you on the RCR mailing list? Never miss a beat of the news and hard-hitting stories you've come to know and love. Stay in the loop. Visit realitycheck.radio forward slash email. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send us a text 2057. Uh, email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. A lot of talk for, forever about standards in our school system, about the basics, the three R's, reading, literacy, writing. Um, but who knows what is actually happening? Because, well, we saw the PISA results come out this week. Not looking good. We'd slip down. We have the anecdotes. But we have someone who has been at the, well, they don't call it the cold face, do they? They call it the chalk face. Good morning, Belinda Duggan. Have I got your name correctly? You have. Good morning. Nice to nice to talk. Tell me, how did you get into teaching? Well, I left school in the mid-90s, uh, went into banking for a, t- for a little while. Um, mm. But I had a fam- I, I came from a family of teachers. My aunt was a teacher trained here in Auckland, and my grandfather was a teacher. He trained here in Auckland as well. Um, and after about a year, I felt that uh, banking wasn't really for me, that I felt I could do more. Um, and so in the late 90s, I went to Auckland College of Education and studied in the first um, Bachelor of Education teaching. So we were the guinea pigs for that degree. Um, and was that three years? It was. It was three years. So big um, commitment. It was. And after, um, you know, uh, being in, in the bank and so on, it was quite quite different. But I was 100% committed to the job. Um, and and so I... For- you Sorry. went from earning earning money to paying out money. Yeah, well, and I, I got a student loan, everything like that, um, and ended up, yeah, teaching uh, my first year teaching here in Auckland uh, in 2000. And I only did a year in New Zealand because I was desperate to travel. Uh, so I went over to England after my first year teaching. Uh, and over there, uh, I learned how to teach. <laughs> I felt, I felt quite um, unprepared for teaching when I came out of teachers' college, even after a three-year degree back then. Uh, and yeah, I felt the curriculum at that time wasn't particularly tight. So when I went to uh, to England and I taught in London, uh, it was very, very structured. We had. You know, this is what you do for maths. This is what you do for English, and there was order to it, and so on. And so, I really, I felt I learned to teach over there. Uh, and, and that structure was provided by the curriculum, yes, the standards, the tests, and the textbooks. Presumably, they all were of one. Yeah. Well, the curriculum was very much so at that time. It was called the literacy strategy and the numeracy mm-hmm. uh, numeracy strategy, and they were. Uh, very uh, in year three. I mean, as a teacher coming from New Zealand, I at first found it quite restricting because I'd been given so much freedom to pretty much do what I liked in my first year teaching and and throughout Teachers College, we'd been trained in that way. So at first it was a bit of a challenge, but after a while I started to see that the actual structure of that was providing... um, real uh, knowledge for the students and I was building on the work that the students had done before 
So I took how, on yeah. How old were the children you were teaching? Uh, I took over from a beginning teacher in England into a year four class. And then I stayed on for another year three. So I had seven to eight-year-olds. Okay. And I found, and yep, sorry. And, and in New Zealand, Zealand I similar. taught a year five class. Mm. So I felt already after a year, like when I started teaching over there, it, it was very much, uh, this is, you know, the standards are higher already. And that was twenty, nearly, nearly 25 years ago. So, oh, that was 2001 I was over there. So a long time ago. My goodness. And the standards were higher. And I can remember getting my year three class to write pen pal letters. You know, it was in the time when we didn't have technology. It wasn't really a thing at the time. And I got them to write these pen pal letters at the end of the year that I was going to bring back to New Zealand and hand on to a class that could I would work with back here. And I can remember bringing them back and I took on a year seven and eight, so form one and two class. And I can remember handing these year three letters to these children and they said to me, gosh, miss, they write better than we do. And that was 20-something years ago. And I can only say oh. that it's just got worse over all those years. But that was 20 years ago. We were behind. Yeah. But that's not six months behind. No. No. That's not a year behind. No, no, and I mean, behind. that's it. I've, I've sent, um, so I was working uh, with some students last year. A school was creating their own exemplars for writing. Sorry, just, just Sorry. come back yeah. to you. How long did you have in England teaching? Uh, I taught there for about, sorry, a year and a half. Yeah, I taught there, taught there for a year and, and a half. Came, then I came back to New Zealand. Came back. And you were shocked then? I was shocked. And also um, I found, uh, so over there I was using what we call, you know, little mini whiteboards and things. And I came back to New Zealand and I found that there wasn't much um, embracing of what I'd learned overseas. It was still quite insular in terms of their thinking. So I was trying to bring in like these whiteboards and bring in some of the things that I'd been teaching from overseas. But I I, I always felt there was a little bit of a, oh, we don't do it like that. <laughs> and, and that was, yeah, I always felt a little bit, uh, try to bring in something like that. But obviously, many whiteboards and things like that have taken off in New Zealand, but it took a long time. You know, we're always a bit slower than it, it just feels like that. And have you been back teaching in New Zealand since that time? I taught, I actually became an art teacher for three years after that. <laughs> and so got out of um, literacy and that whole primary space. And then I went back into, um, you know, a team leader role and intermediate and so on. Uh, and then in about 2013, 2014, oh, in 2010, I went to live in Abu Dhabi of all places. And I taught over there. Mm. Uh, they were recruiting teachers from all over the world who were English speaking. Uh, I had a mortgage at what the time. I was, it was eye-opening. They decided, uh, the Emirate of Abu, Abu Dhabi decided that they wanted um, 
to teach all their Emirati students in English, science and maths, all in English, because they changed the universities in the Emirates so that you had to learn in English. So they needed to prepare all the students to be able to do that. So I ended up teaching a whole lot of Emirati girls who were eight and nine-year-olds, and they were quite feral, to be honest. They were <laughs> they were wild, um, and it was a challenge, <laughs> uh, but eye-opening. And we followed, at the time, the New South Wales curriculum for English, which was quite structured mm. at the time. So uh, I was there for Presumably, a year. Presumably... Presumably Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi. Presumably, when they made this decision, they were like Singapore, mm -hmm. and they just searched around the world for the best curriculum, the best teachers, and paid for it. They certainly did. You know, and they so recruited the teachers. New South Wales London. curriculum. Yeah, the, at the time at, that the was New ten, South Wales that was curriculum must have been ten. a good one. Yeah, it was. It was quite structured at the time as well. The same thing um, coming from mm. New Zealand. Tell me, um, what was Abu Dhabi like? Abu Dhabi like to live in? Well, at the time I was uh, in my thirties, I was single. Uh, people used to think, "Oh gosh, is, is it safe?" And actually, um, I never felt unsafe over there. I felt that there was. Mm. I mean, human rights was something that was a bit of a challenge to deal with. You know, we saw yes. all sorts of treatment of maids and things like that within the schools that we didn't agree with. Um, but just, you know, you just had to get on with it, really. Uh, we we would go to staff meetings and everything would be in Emirati and we'd be lucky if we got a translator for us. So it was, you know, it was a culture shock, but crazy. Um, the the pay, the pay would come in, and we'd go, okay, <laughs> we'll stay a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Pay my mortgage. Where did you live when you were there? I lived in an apartment, so where it was did you all. Live when you were there, where did I live? Part of the deal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it absolutely. It was all deal. paid like, for. Everything was paid for. I lived in an apartment that was paid for all by them. Um, I travelled to England three times within that um, that year that I was there. Mm. Um, but I after I actually I came home to New Zealand because I I, I ended up um, coming home. So you you were living in an apartment. You got to travel to England in that year. Three times. Um, oh. And the last, uh, over the summer holidays, because the children, you know, it would get really hot in the Middle East. So we were contracted to work as teachers until July, mid-July. But by about early May, it was starting to get hot. So the parents of the Emirati children would pretty much say to their children, eh, it's too hot, don't go to school. So for about six weeks... Uh, we just had to go to school and there were no children. <laughs> it was quite different from New Zealand. And so I went overseas. I went over to England, met my mum in those summer holidays. Um, but unfortunately, on my, I started my first week of teaching back in Abu Dhabi in September of 2011. 
and I got a phone call to say my mum was gravely ill um, and she subsequently died of a pulmonary embolism. So I flew back immediately from um, Abu Dhabi and it made me kind of reconsider what I really wanted going forward in terms of my career, having just lost my mum. And I, I was always very passionate about literacy. And so I, I did a bit of work. I went over, over to London for a few months and went to the Olympics and did a few things like that. And when I came back to New Zealand, I ended up in a job working uh, for a professional development company here in Auckland, uh, run, uh, doing primary lit- literacy. And this was in 2014. I don't and know. I, what this, I don't know, Belinda. Mm-hmm. I, I feel stupid. What does professional mm-hmm. development entail? Well, it, there's, there's a whole range of different things. So I was working for a company at the time that was uh, – working, they would win contracts with the Ministry of Education at the time. So schools would apply for funding uh, for professional development where they would have uh, what we call a facilitator going into a school and supporting their teachers with their professional development and the teaching of reading, writing and so on. So I ended up um, doing this role and I I was working in a number of schools in Auckland I would go in um, working you know running workshops or uh, mentoring teachers working alongside them and things like that Um, and And I was there yeah so would all teachers do this or the ones that were lagging or how did how, how, how was it identified that this teacher needed professional development well that's a that's a very good question. There actually isn't uh, huge accountability for that. Uh, it's generally a school will uh, apply and say we want some extra support in this particular field, and then you negotiate or you talk, discuss with the senior management. But generally, they like to. It involves observations of all teachers and so on, but they don't tend to like to uh, single out teachers Mm. Uh, but and how long I mean you'd observe a teacher teaching Mm -hmm. you'd take notes Mm -hmm. I mean it'd be hard to do this in a way that wouldn't get their heckles up oh it is a challenge absolutely Um, and I, I struggled a bit at the time because the way that the professional development was what we were expected to do um, was very much driven by what it it was called um, teaching as inquiry. So teachers sort of inquiring into their own practice and what they thought were their weaknesses and so on. So, or or strengths as well, obviously. Mm. Um, But I, I felt it was, you know, oh, it was very much, oh, what's my hunch? Why are my children not um, doing well in writing? And so it would be a hunch from the teacher what they think might be happening. But it wasn't really, I felt it wasn't really evidence-based. Mm. It felt very, um, whereas as if you've got professional development facilitators who have the knowledge 
that really should be going in and identifying, oh, I, these are some strengths, but this is what I think we could potentially work on. But it didn't really come across as that. I didn't feel like it did at the time. Um, and it was and, quite uh, very driven by the ministry. And you would be a relatively young teacher, oftentimes with teachers older than you? Yes. More and that was, I mean, that you? was a challenge, absolutely. At the time, um, I think I'd been teaching maybe close to 15 years, but obviously mm. if you look younger, uh, there's all sorts of, you know, there's, there's dynamics within schools. So I think the key was always to um, earn the respect of the people that you were working with. It was, um, and I think if you can demonstrate that you are, and I was always, I always was willing to model in classes and so on. So I felt that that would always um, break down barriers for teachers yes. as well. I'm very much a, you know, um, monkey see, monkey do, you know, kind of person or, you know, you go, well, I'm going to go in and I'll, I'll help you, I'll support you. Um, but I would never come in in a way that was, um, I hoped, was in a threatening way. Yes. Uh, well, always, you must yeah. be a very successful teacher to have these roles. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, well, the thing was, I I studied alongside, after doing my bachelor's in the in 2013, I got my uh, postgraduate diploma and I did it all in language and literacy papers. So that kind of helped me. And I did one mm. called language analysis for the classroom. And I felt that the knowledge that I gained from that, it suddenly was like, you know, a light bulb moment for me because I was learning all these different ways of writing sentences and things that I hadn't really been taught. And I I was passionate and keen to try and share some of that knowledge. Uh, and since that time, I've worked in schools. I uh, I worked in a primary school where I mentored beginning teachers. And so every week I was in a class with these beginning teachers and would support them with their writing programs. And a lot of them really valued it. Um, and I think... Uh, you know, if we're thinking about professional development going forward, we we need to. It's a combination of a whole range of things to do it to do it well. Um, and so now, um, so I I did some. I was working uh, for one of the universities last year doing structured literacy as well. Um, and learned so much more uh, so much there as well so I'm always trying to learn myself mm. uh, and alongside that I've been running since well it's really been the last two years I've been running my own business called The Right Lesson and I I wanted to provide a resource that would really help teachers going forward um, with their teaching of handwriting because I noticed a huge problem in teaching uh, in schools with the handwriting ability of many students. And so I um, created a whole lot of online videos where I would, where I uh, 
model and explain how to teach the formation of different letters. So I wanted to be able to upskill teachers and support mm-hmm. them with their professional development, but also teach children at the same time. Uh, and it's proven to be quite successful. Because these days, there's nothing more touching than to receive a beautiful handwritten note. So much more personal, isn't it? And it's such a rarity that when you receive one, compared to a Facebook or a tweet or an email, it is quite wrenching. Absolutely. I know even, you know, having lost my mum, I'd rather read her handwritten letters or, or handwriting than, than an email that I might have of hers because it's so much more personal. Mm. Um, I'm too embarrassed to do any handwriting because my handwriting is so appalling. <laughs> I can't read it, you know, a week later. Yeah. And you read your mum and dad's letters that they wrote. Yeah. Left school at 14, beautiful Mm. handwriting. Well, I think I did it. So a few years ago, I actually, a couple of years ago, I did a survey of teachers um, to find out whether or not, you know, they were trained in handwriting and the the teaching of handwriting. And it turned out that in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it sort of was about 65%. And from 2000 onwards, uh, 65% said yes, they had some sort of training in it. And from 2000 onwards, that's gone up to close to 90% had no training. So you can imagine the last 20 or so years, teachers have come out of teachers' college with no understanding of the importance of handwriting. And it's through no fault of their own. It's just the, the system itself. So we've got a generation of teachers and students who who really can't write very well with their hands. Well, I notice they can't write very well with their typewriter. Wow, that's a very good point. (laughs) And, you know, that was was part of my concern uh, with the professional development. I did a – I really became quite specific with what I felt was necessary or – the best way to support teachers and so I really focused on on things like within writing uh, sentence structure and punctuation because there were many teachers who struggled to and once again through no fault of their own but struggled to actually understand what a compound sentence was or a complex mm. sentence was and things like that um, and so the thing is, if we don't have the teacher content knowledge, because that's not being addressed in the in the um, training, then we're sending students, uh, teachers out without the knowledge. And because we've got 20 years of teachers who don't have certain knowledge as well, mentoring other teachers, it's just sort of a downward spiral at times. And you recently came across the curriculum for next year. Well, yes, I have uh, been working in uh, the secondary space recently and 
was interested to see what the uh, direction was for NCEA. Um, and I can, I do have concerns that we're not really addressing some of the priorities for students, you know, um, there are many, they've just brought in the literacy tests, NZQA literacy tests that all year 10 students have to pass. They have to get credits in order to get NCEA. And there was a test that they did last year and then they, you know, they, the results were so poor back in uh, 22 uh, that you know, there, were, there, were, there were alarm bells going on. So... I actually saw the the difference in the two tests from last year and compared it with this year. And last year, the students were asked to uh, type out answers and so on. If there was a sentence that needed correcting and so on, they had to type it out. But this year, they changed it up so they would write a sentence. There was one that said something like, um, what, what punctuation needs to go at the end of this sentence? And it was a question mark, but it was a multi-choice question. So it was pretty obvious what the punctuation was and where it needed to go. So they changed it from being able, from writing out the sentence correctly to actually just giving them multi-choice answers. And so there was one other one this year. I think it said something like, um, I didn't go to school, something, I was ill. And there were four options, you know, conjunctions. It was because, although, but, or so, or something like that. They were your multi-choice and they had to choose which word that went in that, that um, space. Well, I asked my year four daughter if she could do it. And she understood exactly both those questions. She could do those. And this was a test for year 10 to say that they're competent and ready for NCEA. So, so year 10 is 14-year-olds. Yeah, for, fourth form. So from that little snapshot of what my daughter within them, there were other things that they need to do within that test. You know, they have to write some other things as well, but um, aspects of it I felt were a little bit uh, too low or not really setting the benchmark high enough for our students. It must be heartbreaking for you. Well, it is. <laughs> it really is. I, you know, having having children in the system, and I know you know about this, don't you? <laughs> Yes, Children in the system at the moment, you know, and I'm really thrilled that there are changes going ahead in terms of structured literacy and things like that, that teachers are really focusing on that evidence-based in the primary space or in those junior years. But we have got students in, say, year four, five, six. I've got two stepsons in year 11 and year, year eight at the moment. So... I worry about them. Are they getting, you know, their absolute, the, are they reaching their full potential, especially in writing? My um, daughter has an, I have a niece, so she has a cousin who's five weeks younger in England. Um, and I, I see what they do over there and I, I try to sort of follow some of the curriculum 
here in New Zealand to the English curriculum to try and sort of make sure she's on par with potentially what they're doing over there because I feel that their standards are much higher. Yes, we have, our children have cousins in England, night and day. Mm. And then, I mean, I, I spoke to a boy recently who he said he um, he was year five when he came to New Zealand from, from London and they gave him a reading test when he got here and he thought they were joking because it was so easy. He he and and this particular boy seems to think his education's just gone downhill since mm. since and and I think that's you know that's really sad because we do have so much potential. Our kids are amazing and of they course. they do have the ability to do really well, but they've got to have um you know higher standards. I yeah. I, for some early years with my three young children, sent them to a private school mm-hmm. at huge expense, thinking I'd escape the pitfalls. <laughs> and my experience was equally as dire. Yeah. Because you realize the Ministry of Education, the Malays, is right through the industry. Absolutely. It's so you're, you're, yeah. you're getting a higher number of teachers per pupil and getting some extra activities. But it's still the same, well, I don't know how to describe it. Oh, I do know how to describe it. Child-centred learning. Oh, yeah. There's not a Definitely. Teacher. Well, that's it. And the thing is, majority of the teachers who are working in private schools are all trained in yeah. the same system. Yeah, and they so and they're and still forth. following ministry mm. guidelines. A lot of them, they just mm. yeah lower ratios, but not necessarily. Um, maybe a little bit more accountability because parents can question things a bit more. But um, well, what I oh. find sad and difficult and my children are going to school, primary school now, is for parents. It's such an effort to get to get your kids to school and pick them up, do all the activities. And you wonder what the hell is being achieved. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I do worry about that. You know, I my husband always says to me, oh, don't worry about Sophie, my daughter. She's got you at home, but if, like you or any parent, knows what it's like to try and teach your child when they come home from school after yes. they've been at school for six hours, uh, it's, it's a challenge. So and I, sick I of it. yeah, they are. She, you know, Sophie doesn't want to sit down it's with me. <laughs> so interesting what you say that because I homeschooled my kids for two terms, and the first term we did nothing but have fun. Mm-hmm. In the second term, we knuckled down. But knuckling down meant half an hour a day. Mm-hmm. And I mainly concentrated on maths because that's what I know. I didn't know how to teach English very well. And they just flew along mm-hmm. so fast it was embarrassing. Like, you know, literally in five weeks we would do that year's program because you could get all the resources and yeah. purchase them in. 
and it was and they had and that one-on-one instruction you'd pick it up and then they go and they loved they loved it mm-hmm. and they felt they were good at it and then they go off to school and they come home and oh, I'm not good at that yeah well, I think and, that's the thing though as well is that that how crazy is that that's half an hour and you can get through motor through the content mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. than hours and hours spent at school but then a lot of the time that I I hear or see you know um, that schools are they they prioritize certain things over other things so I'm a real advocate for these new an hour of writing an hour of reading yes. a day I'm a true advocate for it because um, too often the children are off doing this or that or busy 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 but not busy, busy doing you know they'll be doing yeah. mindfulness but not doing handwriting I think mm. you know yeah and where's, where's our priority our sense of urgency to actually get these kids to really support them and make sure that they're they're going to be successful in life eh? and now we have it being taught through a Maori quote lens mm-hmm. tell me about that well um so it's interesting uh with the new directives from the NCEA level one you know everything has to have a mataranga Māori lens through it. What's level one? So you'll have to help us. Uh, so that. that's school C, effectively okay. school C, yeah. school certificate. Um, it's the first year that they do an NCEA. And so the directives are pretty much that if you're taking a text, you have to look at it through a Māori lens. Um, and from what I can see, I... I have reservations around it because I still think there's, you know, if we're if we're solely looking through particular things uh, and particular perspectives, it's really going to limit our students with their critical thinking. Um, and it seems to me that it's it, it is everywhere. Uh, I don't think teachers are keen to question a lot of the the initiatives from the ministry regarding that um, however um, you know for me it's always what what do we what what do our kids need to be successful and I always you know rather than looking at things from that perspective I'd rather look at the child in front of me I couldn't care less if that child was red white blue green yellow um, pink I look at the child for who they are and who they their potential and what they can do and so I think if we can sort of get away from that cultural aspect of really focusing on and boxing children into a particular culture um, or and having to identify with that, I think if we can just look at them in a more holistic kind of way, and it, really focus. When, mm-hmm. when you're looking at this Maori thing, mm-hmm. um, by the way, you're on Rally Check Radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Belinda Duggan. We're talking about teaching and standards, and how even twenty years ago there was a remarkable difference in standards between here in England, here freewheeling over there disciplined and structured. 
and it hasn't improved here in New Zealand, and now the teachers themselves are product of that system. And now we are talking about looking at everything through a Maori lens. Is it teaching things from a Maori perspective just, or is it being conscious that the student is Maori? Is there's a difference between? The I think I think there's. Well, I don't think it's actually one hundred percent clear on any of that at this particular time. Um, really? So, as you were teaching, well, Mataranga Maori. I mean, I haven't done a lot of the the uh, training, but I have seen, you know, what the criteria is. You know, what a program looks like um, at a school going forward for NCA English, and it pretty much says um, Mataranga Maori needs to be woven through texts. So, um, what would that mean? Well, what does it mean? I, you know, do we? If it, if it's not one hundred percent clear, I think to teachers, what does it mean? There are there's some resources out there which have um, looking at from a Fano perspective or looking at it from. But I actually think it's just what we've done all along. It's just changing it up. So it's, you know, we always look at a text from certain perspectives. I, I can't see how it's going to make any difference. And for me, it's, it's, it's taking us away from what the priority is at the moment. You know, everything we've been doing, which has all been culturally significant, and, and you know, we're all, always trying to do that, which is great, but we need to really focus on if we're teaching English we need to teach English and fill those gaps and make sure our students are fully prepared to be able to converse and write in it properly but if we get sidetracked by um, doing particular things and focusing on on the meaning behind it you know at the moment we've got kids who can't the majority of our students can't write a complete sentence they actually don't know what a what a sentence is so let's go back to that and then potentially look at analysing things through other another lens. But I, I, I just can't I can't see how it's it's going to make any huge difference. Is is it is it a way, you know I I what I actually think we need to do is look at surveying Māori. And, and anybody, all New Zealanders actually, and find out, do we want our children to be educated in English? And do we see it as a priority? And I'm really pleased to see that at least English is going to be an official language of New Zealand because in the curriculum last year, the draft curriculum, the, the um, it said that New Ze English was the default language in the country, and I couldn't believe it. Mm relegating it to that but you know what do you think is going on because if the ministry of education mm -hmm. set out over the last 20 years to miseducate and confuse young people yeah. as to who they were and what they are, what's important, what's valuable, 
what are good principles, mm -hmm. how to do arithmetic, how to read, and how to write clearly and concisely, mm -hmm. how to think critically, how to how science works, how the world works, what history is and geography. If they set out to destroy all wonder and learning and knowledge of that amongst young people, you could not have done a better job. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, you know, and that's what I, I think if there was a shake-up, what we need to do is we need to look at all the people that have been contributing to education, supporting, you know, there's there's professional development companies out there that have been given millions and millions of dollars to run professional development in schools. And the government's still paying them money to do that. And what's happened? Has have our outcomes improved? No, they've gone down. Exactly. So and why spend... why keep funding them? Why keep focusing on these particular things? Let's just, you know, let's reset. But do you, but do you think I mean, here's, here's, I guess, there's no answer to this, Belinda. Mm -hmm. But I used to think they were misguided and that they were dreamers and that they were pinko socialists. I'm talking here about the Ministry of Education. Yeah. Now I think they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, I think so. Really? Oh, my mm. goodness. I think it's a there's, a, there's a political agenda behind it all. To I mean, I, I, my daughter came home from school the other day and she said, Mum, I did a Te Reo survey today. Oh, okay. What was that? What was it? Oh, and I asked her what some of the questions were. And I wasn't sure where it was coming from or what was going on. And she said, oh, I was asked, does your teacher use... Tereo in the classroom. Does uh, how often do you use it? What do you think about learning it? And so on. They had questions like sometimes, never, or their opinions, and so on. So I just questioned. I just asked the school actually for information about this survey out of curiosity, and it turns out that it's actually one being sent out to all. It's got here. Takureo student survey is an online survey designed for New Zealand students in English medium schools from years four to eight. They are wanting to collect, and it's the NZCER, so Council for Educational Research, which is funded by the government, uh, by the ministry. It can help increase awareness of student voice about te reo Māori in schools. It gives you a snapshot of your students' use of it at school, at home, and in the community. So I want to know, personally, why is this data being collected? What are they wanting to do with it, you know? Oh, dear. <laughs> so for me, it felt like a bit of a gotcha kind of moment. Like if if um, if a teacher's not particularly using a lot of tereo in the classroom, then it'll be obvious. So are they trying to get gotcha moments of teachers and saying, well, you're not doing it or you are? You see what I mean? 
Yes, I see exactly what you mean. Mm. So I think I think there's I think you're one hundred percent correct in that. I I don't think they the ministry's gone into this blindly at all. I think every decision is made um in a strategic kind of way to fit the fit the agenda. And I, you know, it really breaks my heart because ultimately I want what's best for all children. Um, But uh, unfortunately, the decisions that the ministry is making in terms of the curriculums and so on is that children who would have, you know, done pretty well in the education system in the past are actually all dropping as well. So not only are our um, is our tale of underachievement growing, but the the students who were performing at higher levels are also dropping as well. And also they're being turned off. Oh, completely. If you're a bright little kid, bushy tail, going off to school to learn, and you just get this confused mush. Yeah. Well, and and I think, you know, uh, they talk about technology and so on in the schools and the, from what I've observed with, say, um, students who are year nine, ten, you know, form three, form four, when they're in schools, they're on devices, there is this distraction Mm. and the research shows it, you know, if if your neighbour is on a, on the device, on a computer, then you get distracted, everything. And so in recent times, I've been advocating for working in school and books. And actually, I found that students, many of them actually really just get on with it, more so when they're physically writing, because they don't have all the other distractions and they're more engaged in the content. Would you get in trouble mm. for speaking out like this? Potentially. (laughs) You're a brave girl. I am very brave. Yeah, well, it makes me nervous, but I also, I I really want what's best for everybody. And, you know, I'm I'm trying my best, you know, even with the handwriting. um, I'm doing what we call... I'm starting a new initiative next year called the PASS project, which is PASS meaning punctuation and sentence structure. So I'm really, I'm always trying my best, but I sometimes feel like I'm. Um, do teachers sit around, does teachers sit around the staff room? Yeah. In your experience, mm. and question the stuff. Some do. Some but not all, and it's almost a a topic that's not talked about. Because a within any staff, we're going to get carried away now, you and I. If you're not in, <laughs> if you're not in trouble already, I'll put you in it. Um, <laughs> you don't need to comment on this, but I go into staff rooms school staff rooms when I used to do such a thing and visit mm-hmm. and you actually felt that there were Labour Party apparate, what's that word? Sort of yeah. apparatchiks or something mm-hmm. there ready to report you mm-hmm. and that I can imagine if you questioned 
the extensive use of te reo, mm -hmm. or if you question the extensive use of looking at everything through a Maori lens, which is preposterous in of itself, mm -hmm. or questioned gender ideology, you would have a black mark and get reported or get accused of being racist or transphobic or all the words that they use. And no, so absolutely. it doesn't happen. No, that's it. And it's often, um, you know, coming from a perspective of, Ultimately, yeah, I just want what's best for all children and support them. Well, good for you. Yeah. I, when I was Associate Minister of Education, I'd have Ministry of Education staff mm. uh, work with me, and they would f refer to the ministry as the Kremlin. Yeah. And always, I'm just wandering back to the Kremlin. And I thought it was a joke, you know, yeah. like, but in a funny way. It was a joke with a serious intent and mm. in that they felt like they were living in this ideological camp. And I, I think that's exactly what it is. A lot of what they do is ideological, you know, and it's mm. rather than anything uh, that's well, can you can, can you imagine Abu Dhabi and Singapore? These are countries that have a rich cultural heritage. Yeah. But when they've looked at it, they've said, we've got to teach our kids English. Mm -hmm. Let's go out and get the best. Yeah. They don't sit there and say, oh, we're going to look at this through a yeah. Abu Dhabi lens or an Arab lens mm -hmm. or a Chinese lens or a Malay lens. They say, English is it. Let's get the best. Absolutely. And in a funny way, in doing that, they preserve their culture. Definitely. And, you know, these children were learning. Um, they had their Arabic teachers and they had their English teachers, mm. but they valued it. They valued it. It's not going to be easy for the new government to turn this around. No, but I keep I keep thinking of, you know, the education system here is, I, I say it's its a tugboat or it's its like a dinghy. It's not an ocean liner. No. England managed to do things quite quickly at pace, you know, to turn things around. Mm. Um, and they've got 67 million people. We've got 5 million people. We've got, you know, it's not... If, if there was just a sense of urgency and we could put the right people in the right places, I think it could be turned around pretty quickly. And I but mean, unfortunately, you know, it's, a lo it's the long game, isn't it? You know, it and is. our kids who are in the system at the moment are potentially not going to actually even have any of those benefits. Of it. But, but I always think, you know, it can be turned around. We can, can do it quickly. Let's be positive. Let's be positive. <laughs> and also, you could just... <laughs> transport and colonize our education system with that of England's. Well, or Abbey, that's, or that's it. You know, you could just bring in head teachers, mm -hmm. head staff, and say, this is it. And if you're not with the program, you're fired. Because well, there's nothing worse than keeping second rate teachers who are fighting the education of our kids because of their own laziness and ideological blinkers 
and every year they're knocking out 20 kids who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to, be, but we have to be forceful, and we have to back this government, um, even though they'll make mistakes. We have to back them, definitely, and and to you give know, them the strength. Uh, it would absolutely, and we've got to. There are some things I think that need to be mandated and need to be mm. compulsory for teachers. Mm. We can, and no, you know, New Zealand teachers very much. Um, no. We don't all have to do the same thing. But if you think of something like as simple as handwriting, if you've got little Johnny right. who's who's the little most transient child who's gone from here, this house, to this house, to this house, different schools, and every school he goes to is getting a different – he might get handwriting at one school, might not at another one, he might get this, that, and so on. They are the most disadvantaged children, whereas if we've got consistency of practice – That's right. You know, we we will raise achievement for those most disadvantaged because they're getting something that's um, consistent rather than a whole hodgepodge of of education. I, I see it in how they've worked out. I got my little boy in the swimming class, mm-hmm. and I can see they have a program. How to, they know now how to teach kids to swim, mm. and it's amazingly efficient. Mm. And he can go from coach to coach, from swimming school to swimming school, and just slot straight in. Yeah. Can't do that in reading. Whereas imagine if they were all doing the same thing. I know. (laughs) Or doing different things. I know. Yeah. Uh, Tell me this. Have you any thoughts for homeschooling your children? Um, I'm tempted. I'm actually tempted myself to um, even just run homeschooling classes. (laughs) Is part of the business rather than, yes. than, you know, and say, okay, I'm I'm running a writing class for an hour today for this year group. People who are homeschooling, I'll teach your children every day for an hour. That would be wonderful. Yeah. I mean, that would, you know. But... There you go. Well, thank you, Belinda. <laughs> thank you for being brave yeah. and speaking up, putting on your big girl blouse. <laughs> I was going to say pants, but that was rude. Um, because I always talk about me putting on my big boy pants whenever I'm about to do something a bit scary. So yeah. putting on your big girl's blouse and coming on. Yeah. Thank you for being so passionate yeah. and being such a good teacher. <laughs> and thank you for telling us about what it is like on the inside mm. and that our fears and our concerns aren't misguided. No, they're not. And I think people just need to keep questioning. Um, There we go, ladies and gentlemen. That was Belinda Duggan. She is a very, very good teacher, clearly, given her CV and where she's been and what she's done. And clearly, she wants the best for our kids, not just a job. And oh, my goodness, if we were falling behind, not by months, but by years, before, imagine what it's like when we do everything through a quote Hamari lens. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send me a text 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Sobering and worrying is what I'd call that. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now 
You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.